This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary Media and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Jay Fulcher and Zenefits. Yeah, so my first week on the job wasn't the most fun because we, in fact, laid off 420 people that first five days. What what percentage of of employees was that? That was 45% of the employee base. How the online insurance company came crashing down and how Jay Fulcher came in to pick up the pieces and rebuild. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So there's the iconic story we hear all the time. A couple of young founders come up with a great idea. They create a company and they ride that rocket ship to the moon or to a billion-dollar valuation. Now, not all of these stories have happy endings. Some of these companies plateau or fizzle out. Some face losses and layoffs, even bankruptcy. And some even fail in a much bigger way. Like the scale of failure is so massive and so public that it seems like they'll never recover. Well, Zenefits was one of those companies. It was founded in 2013 by Parker Conrad and Lax Srini. Parker was a cancer survivor, and his experience dealing with insurance inspired him to start a tech company that would disrupt the industry, make it easier for employers to provide insurance and benefits to their staff. It was a great idea that worked, at least at first. They got more than $500 million in investments and were on their way to a multi-billion dollar valuation. But behind the scenes, it was a very different story. The company was growing too fast. Some described a toxic party culture, some bad behavior. You can go read about it if you're curious. And on the business side, the company was taking shortcuts. Salespeople were selling insurance without being licensed. By 2016, the company was in a downward spiral. They fell way short of their sales goals. Regulators were investigating the licensing issues. Its founder and CEO resigned. It was chaos. So at this point, the board started looking for another CEO. And that's when they found Jay Fulcher. Jay had years of experience managing and leading companies. But he wasn't the typical Silicon Valley CEO. He didn't go to Stanford. He didn't study computer science. In fact, he was a jock. He was an athlete who grew up playing football in Santa Clara, California. 
He even walked onto the team at a Division I university. And he actually says it was his experiences as an athlete that prepared him to lead a huge company. It was pretty clear to me early on that I thought I had some real leadership skills and an ability to kind of, you know, step into the huddle and be able to command everybody's attention, connect with basically everybody on the team, regardless basically of what side of the ball they played on, what position they were in, how good or or not they were in their role. And in some ways, right, it's such a corollary to what goes on in business. And so... Yeah, I think some of the athletic background that I had, um, I think was pretty preparatory for me. And it, it did kind of help me to understand where I thought I had some good innate skills that I could build on and that could potentially kind of lead me to a career. Hmm. I guess after college, uh, you sort of worked your way up into, into leadership positions pretty quickly because I read that within 10 years of graduating, you were a, a vice president at the software company SAP. Yeah. You know, for, for many, I think sometimes they kind of look at these things and, and think that, you know, this was all sort of ordained or planned or whatever. Mm. For me, it was very different in that, first of all, I was just very, very fortunate to have um, picked some really good opportunities, mostly around people and, and looking at, at opportunities through the lens of, um, are these people that I can learn from and, um, you know, be able to, uh, you know, kind of develop my career under? It was a very, very fast ride. And, of course, um, it was it was really kind of a thrilling situation because just about the time that I would settle into a certain job, you know, it was time to sort of expand either my responsibilities or to maybe take on something that was a, a new wrinkle in something that I hadn't done before. And so it kept it very fresh and it kept it very exciting, but it also kept it very challenging for me. And so, yeah, that first 10 years was was really a neat opportunity for me. What was your first experience as a as a CEO, as, as a leader, the, the overall leader of a company? Yeah, so I think I'm a little unusual in that my very first CEO job was as a public company CEO. Most times, people generally have those opportunities in a, in a private setting, in a less public, less visible kind of a, a situation. And in, in my case, I came into a company called Agile Software uh, as the president and COO, supporting the CEO and co-founder of the company, who um, had done a great job of, of you know, taking the company public. But it, it had kind of come onto some hard times. It had, it had been in a situation where it was losing a fair amount of money each quarter. How many people worked at the company at the time? Yeah, Agile had uh, something less than a thousand employees. I mean, it sounds like a, a sort of a, a crash course, right? Because you go from being, you know, a senior manager to other companies to overseeing a, a company of a thousand people. Was it was it scary? How did you know what to do? Yeah, you know, all of these situations bring with it um, a certain amount of of anxiety and a little bit of angst. I, I actually think those feelings actually serve us all. I know I know it does for me. It it, it really sharpens your your focus, and I think it it really forces you to kind of think through how do I need to kind of um, in some ways deconstruct what's required here in order for the company to really perform at its best and to be all that it can be. And and for me, um, I did go into it with some level of trepidation, but. 
I, I did have a fair amount of confidence around what I felt like I had learned about what what we could do better and, and in some cases differently in order to be able to, you know, get Agile to uh, to a better place. And so we, we did make a, a number of, of changes. We um, started to focus on different market segments and we started to, uh, in some ways, sharpen uh, our sales methodology and the way that we approach clients. Um, Agile was a, a, a product lifecycle management company. In other words, it was really a company that was helping to usher in this era of distributed engineering hmm. where, you know, companies were starting to rely on engineering teams all over the world to collaborate on building and bringing to market different products. And so it was a really neat opportunity to be able to really be specific about what industries did we think we could really make some major progress in. And, and the company had already had a fair amount of success in high tech, um, but we wanted to kind of beyond, expand beyond just the high tech space. And so that's kind of what what we focused on uh, during those years, in addition to just getting much smarter and more, I think, intense around the way in which we made investments, either around product or around entering new markets or around, you know, building out our team. And um, and then obviously that led to, at some point, uh, Oracle coming in and and acquiring the company several years later. And how long did you did you stay at Agile? And then I once um, the company was acquired by Oracle, I left. I ended up wanting to kind of figure out what was next for me. And at, at that point, I really was looking for, in some ways, a little bit of a change out of enterprise software. And so I took a. Mm. An extended break, and I've been very fortunate because I've been able to do that in a at a couple of different junctures in my career where it's given me a chance to kind of pick my head up and think more broadly about where I want to spend my time. And so that's what I did after after Agile before uh, before finding uh, the next opportunity. And 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 what what was it? About a year after that, I became involved with a number of sort of sports and sports media related businesses mostly as an investor and, and as somebody that was helping to kind of mentor and guide and in some ways advise some of these young companies that were, that were I'd say, more media companies in some ways than tech companies. And I came across um, the founding team at a company called Uyala. Uyala was a, was a, um, a, a video platform company that was basically focused on online video and the notion of starting to move television to a, a, a different kind of a platform, obviously utilizing uh, the internet, and use, utilizing streaming technology that could allow all kinds of different content to, to be shared with, with obviously broader audiences and to, and to be able to do that uh, in, an, in an online setting versus in traditional television. Hmm. It was an idea whose time had come, obviously, especially now looking back over the course of what's happened the last 10 years, they had built some really cool technology and they had asked me, so with some of the experience that you've had in helping to both turn around but then drive companies to even greater heights, you know, we need to go raise some money pretty quickly and we need to um, go see whether or not this company really can kind of brush up against its potential and we think you're the guy to go do it, and and I was delighted. It was it was really a, a really cool company that I got really excited about that and and jumped in with both feet. And and you ran the company for what uh, like like six years, right? 
Yeah, I was I was there for quite some time, and it was really fun. That that company got up to, you know, being seven eight hundred employees, and in many ways, it was one of the companies that kind of helped to shape and form what is now uh, a a pretty burgeoning online media industry with lots of companies uh, that are kind of driving a, a really different way of being able to reach a mass audience with all kinds of different content. So I want to I want to go back to like 2014, 2015. Um, you were at Uyala at that time, right? Right. You're working in Silicon Valley. That's right. Presumably, you're following you know developments that are going on around around the industry, and there is a company that is just going wild in its valuations, benefits. It becomes like the unicorn of unicorns. Like May 2013, it's founded. Um, within a year, it's valued at like more than half a billion dollars. Um, had you had it been on your radar at all when you were the CEO of this other company? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, th- I think a, a lot of people here, not just in the valley but elsewhere, uh, certainly in the tech space, uh, followed what was a very clever business model and what was really kind of breakneck growth. And, and just for people who don't uh, may not know the story. Um, I mean, Zanifis is really disrupting an industry in a major way, right? That's right. So back in the in the early days, what the company really was doing, which was very clever, was to give very good, very well-constructed, well-designed, very innovative software away in exchange for becoming the broker of record, the insurance uh, broker, for those customers where then the company gets paid from a business model perspective commissions on the insurance that is sold. That had not been done before where you were marrying the importance of tech in combination with the advisory around employee benefits and healthcare and medical and dental and all the rest. And um, and so that was a that was a very innovative model. When you watch that from afar, from your perch, um what 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 did you make of it? I mean, what what you graduated college in the mid '80s, right? Like you you came in with the first wave of the web, and right, you're an old guy compared to that. So, did you look at it from from that perspective? Like, God, I don't even understand how this stuff is happening. Well, I I think there's a couple of observations that I remember having at the time. And number one, the thing that was pretty clear to me is that the way in which Zenovitz had disrupted a, a very old industry with a very different kind of a business model that caused customers to be able to easily make a choice in favor of their technology in exchange for, you know, a value prop that they couldn't get really any other way. I thought that was really very innovative on on, on, on the part of, of, of the founders and the investors at Zenefits. So for sure, that was an impression I think many of us had. I think the other observation I had, though, was for me at least um, – I'm somebody, and this this may sound very old school or, and or antiquated, mm-hmm. and you know I'm, I may be guilty as charged, but you know I, I just think it's it's really critical not to um, put too much emphasis or faith in a lot of what's talked about in terms of valuations right. and you know sort of the what I would consider to be overhyped and overly publicized growth metrics. Because at the end of the day, you know, one of the things that is one of the um, 
I think, lessons of Zenefits is that growth at any cost is, has got issues. Yeah. And, you know, the, the one thing I think when you see any of the businesses, and Zenefits is just one of many, many different examples uh, of companies where, you know, you sort of begin to get a concern potentially that are all the other necessary ingredients in a particular business keeping pace with the growth that's occurring in that company. And even in those early days from a distance, I remember having sort of those kinds of observations, not only about Zenefits, but around companies that were at the time kind of being um, touted and talked about uh, in, in pretty hyperbolic ways about sort of the, the, the growth and the milestones that they're achieving and the speed at which they were achieving them. So this is, of course, before you would be brought into the company, but right. what was going on in the background? What, what was happening at the company that uh, where the cracks started to appear? Like you say, I joined the company in the very early part of 2017 and in, in actually in early February. And so um, I can't I can't easily or, or uh, authoritatively speak to exactly the issues. But, you know, this is a company that had so many of the right ingredients in terms of really talented people um, and really um, – uh, some, as I said before, really good technology. But it is a company that, for whatever reason, from a cultural perspective, had become, I think, obsessed with growth, but it potentially was devoid of some of the other ingredients that have to work in combination with, you know, aspirations around being a bigger, better, and 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 highly scalable kind of a company. And so when when growth is the mantra, and it's not also combined with some of these other things. Um, that's, I think, when companies can get in trouble. And I think, from my perspective, that's my observation of kind of what, have, what, what occurred with Zenefits. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. 
Cloud 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Sanofitz is this company that was founded by two young co-founders, one of them Parker Conrad, who had this really inspiring story. He survived testicular cancer, and that kind of gave him an insight into the complexity of the insurance industry. And he wanted to change that. He wanted to make it easier for people to get insurance. Um, and so that was sort of this this foundational story, and it was very inspiring. And the company just exploded in growth. But I have to imagine that with that growth and all that money coming in and these giant valuations, uh, they kind of at a certain point didn't really worry about the rules, right? Because insurance is super regulated. Like if you sell insurance, you have to be licensed. You have to be licensed in the state or in multiple states. And at a certain point, like there were people selling insurance at Zenefits and they were not licensed. They were just doing this to just hit sales goals. Is that is that more or less right? Well, I, I think that's kind of the broad perception. Um, hmm. I think, you know, to maybe put a, a bit of a finer point on this, I think – what the real reality was is that the company actually had um, licensed brokers in the company, and we absolutely had people that were adhering to, you know, all of the regulatory requirements around training and licensing those employees to be able to uh, to be able to sell insurance. It is true, though, that at one point, and this is broadly documented. Um, there was a, a an attempt to try to kind of optimize and compress some of what's required from a regulatory perspective in the way that people have to be um, licensed. You know, in non-regulated industries, that, that potentially might have been celebrated as an innovation. But, you know, in regulated industries, if there's 52 hours of training that are required and, you know, a macro gets built in order to compress that training into something – that doesn't take 52 hours, uh, that's a problem. And so, you know, when that was discovered, that was the issue that that obviously the company self-reported. But then, you know, the company also, frankly, immediately went to work on building compliance products in open source and making them available to the industry. The, the thing is, right, is that Zenefits discovered this non-compliance issue, self-reported it, um, which all companies have to do because if you didn't do it, you'd be in even bigger trouble, right? Um, and then this crisis period begins in the sense that um, the company's valuation plummets, and there's uh, there all kind of all kinds of media attention, and then all kinds of media investigations. And of course, no company wants that, right? Nobody wants that. Um, so, so even though the company tried to be forthright in its in reporting what happened, there was a crisis nonetheless. I mean, the, the 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 company all of a sudden was plunged into a crisis. Yeah, the company was was in a situation at that point where it immediately understood that it needed to go about rebuilding trust, really across across the spectrum of constituents, from you know beginning to work with insurance commissioners. Uh, and all of the the regular regulators across uh, all 50 states to 
working with our own employees and helping them to understand and, and to put into perspective not only what occurred, but what we're going to go do about it. So, um, yeah, there's there's no question. It was, it was a crisis moment. There's no uh, underestimating or, um, you know, diminishing uh, the existential crisis that the company was in in the early part of 2016. Where, where were you, like, what was going on in your life in, I don't know, late 2016 when you're contacted by someone who says, hey, can you come and run Zenefits, like help, help bring it out of this crisis? Yeah, so for me, I had um, just come off of um, having my latest company, Uyala, acquired, and I had uh, been on the sidelines. And, and quite frankly, I had really started to think that I kind of closed the the book on on the operating chapter of my career. I was huh. very involved in a number of different boards. Um, in a couple of cases, I'd been a long term board member in a couple of companies. And I'd been a fairly active uh, investor in, in, in a few others. And so um, I was actually quite busy, but not in, an, in a, in a full-time job and certainly not in an operating capacity. And, you know, the team at Andreas and Horowitz had called me and just said, you know, we've, we've got a slate of people that we're talking to. And your name and quote-unquote profile keeps kind of coming up in these conversations. Mm-hmm. And rather than, you know, talk about – somebody that has some of your kind of experience and and sort of leadership skills as a model, <laughs> we want to reach out to you to see, is this something you'd even consider? Hmm. So and, these and are just all to, the just to interject, Andreessen Horowitz, I think, was and maybe still is the biggest single investor of, at, at Zenefits. Yeah, they, along with uh, TPG, are, are the two primary mm-hmm. uh, investors in terms of, you know, the size of their ownership stake. And so, um, you know, when the call came, I certainly wasn't dismissive because I, I just I have a ton of respect for the firm, and and obviously as a result of that, I, I kind of said, you know, I'm I'm really, I doubt I'm interested in in, in an operating role, but uh, I was really curious about Zenefits and what occurred there, and you know, to what degree is there something there that's not just salvageable, but frankly, is is, is there is there a lot more there that can be worked with. And what I came away with was I immediately discovered that not only was, you know, the company uh, salvageable, it, it had so many of the right ingredients to be a really important company in the space. So, so talk to me. Take me into the first days or weeks of your time at Zenefits. What did you do? What, what were some of the first things you did? The first thing was was to to really finish the job of resetting the culture and the values and the mission of the company. It, it's this notion around missionaries versus mercenaries and this ability to really make sure that people understood that while growth and scale and making sure that we're winning in the marketplace is important, we also want to make sure that we're delivering on all of our promises. We want to make sure that we're operating with integrity. We want to make sure that we're we're doing the right things very proactively with regulators all around the country. Um, the second thing is, is, is the business pivot. Um, I spent some time really talking about figuring out what can we do going forward given some of the compliance issues 
to kind of lessen some of the compliance risk and really move forward on and propel forward on uh, the things that the company clearly had done a great job on, which is the technology piece. So what we started to do there was to focus on being a SaaS technology company. And instead of giving our technology away for free, let's charge for our tech and let's see if we can get uh, as many of our customers as possible to move forward on going from a freemium model to a, a, a pay model. And, um, you know, that was, a, that was a big bet. And what was really exciting for us is, you know, more than 70% of our customers moved to the pay model. And what we discovered is that there was a huge amount of interest in the broker community to want to work with Zenefits and to try to coordinate what they know how to do really well, which is advisory mm -hmm. services, mm -hmm. with what we know how to do well, which is our technology. So that pivot from being competitive with brokers to being cooperative with brokers was a, was a big component. And then the third element was the team. Um, you know, for me, it was, it was pretty obvious um, coming into the company that I felt like the team really needed to be made over. Did, did that mean getting rid of lots of people? Like, did, did you have to do layoffs? Yeah, so my first week on the job um, wasn't the most fun because we, in fact, laid off 420 people that first that wow. first five days. Is that what, how many, what, what percentage of, of employees was that, like 50? That was 45% of the employee base. Wow. Yeah, you know, that, that, that first few months was really tough. The, the second piece was the pivot, which is <laughs> I imagine this is not an easy decision to make because I have to imagine that selling insurance was at a certain point a huge revenue stream, if not the biggest revenue stream. For sure. And so you're essentially saying we're going to cut out one of our biggest revenue streams and we're going to get out of that business entirely and completely pivot our focus onto enterprise software. Yeah. So. You're entirely right that um, it was a you bet the company kind of moment. Mm. Definitely we're, we're making a, a really big statement to start talking about the fact that we're going to go find a partner to um, basically move our book of insurance business to. And what's really interesting about that is, is because we do have such good customers and because we had done a good job as an insurance broker – we were able to move, you know, more than more than 6,500 customers to a insurance broker partner, One Digital, to help us manage that book of business and to do that in a way where we, to this day, have a long-term sustained revenue share of that business. And so and presumably it, it's still being tested, right? I mean, uh, it's still – you're not going to fully know whether that was the right decision for maybe another year or so. Well, I think I think for sure, it, um, you know, in the fullness of time, we'll have a better understanding of like how that's really worked. I will tell you, now a year and a half later, um, we have moved the entire book of business to One Digital. Um, they are doing a great job of retaining those customers and and continuing to grow that revenue base, not only for themselves but for us. Um, and it has freed us up to become the tech company that I think, frankly, we originally had intended to be and, and that we're capable of being. And so, you know, I think the early signs 18 months in are actually very good. And I think it suggests that this was exactly the right decision to make, albeit a difficult one. 
Jay, how much of your first two years on this job has been reputation management, has been to really, you know, I mean, to, to kind of rebrand or, or, or sort of get people to understand what Zenefits actually is and what it's not? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we did really early on in my tenure is we wondered about brand and brand equity and to what degree our customers have been or or ever were distracted by maybe some of the some of the issues with the company especially back in the 2016 time frame and rather than sort of either wonder about that or or take a bunch of sort of third party extraneous opinions on that um, we decided to go collect data I, mean, I think in today's day and age you don't actually have to wonder about this you can actually go test it mm. And so we went to six different cities around around the country. We did a bunch of um, of, of work to try to bring in uh, not just Zenefits customers, but just companies in those markets to better test and understand uh, some of these issues. And kind of what came out of that um, was the fact that Zenefits actually has a really strong brand. It's it's um, a company that is very well recognized, hmm. and the Customer feedback, whether they are a Zenefits customer or whether they would at some point consider being a Zenefits customer, is actually quite strong and positive. And so that told me that it was important to kind of tell the story about what we've done to kind of reset ourselves and the pivot that we've undertaken and the team that we've built and, frankly, what our mission is today. And so that was really encouraging when we went and, and, and sort of tested for that. So there's no question in, in, in my role, um, there's, a, uh, there's a brand building part of my responsibility. And for sure, I spend a fair amount of time making sure that in some ways, the story of Zenefits is told accurately. At a certain point, you must have considered changing the name of it, right? Right. That was part of the data collection that we did, Guy, was to was to understand to what degree, um, you know, does the brand itself and the name of the company, um, you know, what, what, what does that conjure up? What, what does that represent in the minds of the marketplace? And again, when we tested that out, um, we found it to be a, a much more of a positive than, than even we, what we anticipated. I mean, it was a, a, a much, much more positive. People had a good sense of the company and you thought, hey, we, we, we thought we were, you know, our reputation was, was, was in a different place, but actually we're okay. Well, and I think that's one of the things that I tried to bring to the dynamic when we were doing the testing is I actually didn't necessarily have a preconceived notion. Hmm. Um, some of the people on my team, for sure, uh, I think were concerned that maybe that was going to be the case. For sure, some of our investors wondered whether it was time to actually do some sort of a rebrand. But the results were actually very clear that um, the marketplace had a very good impression of the company and a very good impression of, you know, what the company had done in the wake of the original scandal. As, I mean, as you sort of begin to implement your strategy and watch it, right, it's got, it's the culture piece, so you got to focus on that. It's the pivot piece, the, the, the business model. And then it's the team, the people that run it, right? Is it 33% of your t attention to, to those three things or, or, or is it – do you focus more attention on one of those things or does it, does it 
shift depending on what's going on? Well, I th- I think, you know, obviously all of those things probably in perpetuity end up being um, the things that I spend time and energy and, f- and focus on for sure. And there's no question that, um, you know, situationally uh, at times there'll be more emphasis in one area versus another. I would say in general, though, um, I think we've we've really hardened and solidified the, the the cultural dynamic. I think people are very clear about who we are, what we do, and why it matters. And I think that they're very clear about the way that we even define culture inside the company, which is how do we do things here, right? We don't really over-architect the definition. It's it's really just how do we do things here? And so that that part I think is really, really there. The the pivot is also complete and for me, the the team dynamic is kind of probably where a, a, a huge part of my focus, um, for sure, always is. Um, I'm I'm wanting to make sure that we've got, you know, great people at the point of attack doing um, the kinds of things that are going to make our business go. Especially when you're a 500 person company and um, and growing as quickly as we are. Winning the intellectual capital battle and, and and bringing great talent into the company is a never ending, a never ending challenge. Yeah, I mean, how do you find people? How do you find the right people? What questions do you ask them? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's an interesting thing. I know for me, a, a lot of where I spend my time in talking with prospective candidates is not so much necessarily about their experience, uh, and it's certainly not necessarily about you know where they went to school or. I'm a lot more interested in in terms of what drives them. Um, the older I get, the more I uh, I become really convinced that that attitude is such a huge part of what makes great companies great. It's it's having people with the right mindset, and in some cases, trying to evaluate in some ways, you know, how curious are they about themselves and about you know, whether or not this opportunity is going to, you know, allow them to kind of really express what they're capable of. That's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm kind of focused on when I talk to people. Do you see yourself as like, um, are you the kind of leader that, you know, is charismatic, that you can stand in front of a, uh, the, the team and really sort of cheer them on and get them motivated? Or do you, are you more of a sort of a, a quiet, you know, sort of, quietly manage different um, initiatives and watch people kind of self-motivate? Well, I think for me, certainly anyone that knows me knows that I'm not particularly quiet. You know, I've got (laughs) a lot of opinions and I'm not um, shy about both expressing what I think the right things to do are and and also not shy about making sure that we're being really radically transparent around how we're doing. And and obviously that transparency is really easy uh, when things are up and to the right and everything's going really, really well. You start to become a lot more tested when there's hard things to talk about. But I find, in, especially in today's day and age with the way that the workforce operates and, and working with especially millennials and Generation Z workers who now in the next couple of years are going to make up 75% of the overall workforce, you know, it's not enough to talk to people about what I need them to go do. It's it, it, it's more of a discussion around 
Here's what we think we need to go do. Here's the rationale for why we think that's the right thing to go do. And, the, and let's have a conversation around how we're going to go get it done. Hmm. And, and I think as a result of, of taking more of that kind of an approach, I think that puts us in a, in a really good spot. You know, I, I think on the, on the charismatic aspect of it, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't particularly relish getting up in front of our team or in, or in front of big audiences and talking about the future of what we're going to go do. That is a hugely necessary part of the job. But I think the part for me from a leadership perspective that, that I actually do relish is this notion of being able to take our strategy and the approach that we've really taste tested and wire brushed very rigorously and begin to put that into operational terms that the company can go execute on. And uh, at times that, that requires a, a fair amount of, um, I guess, charisma and presentation and, you know, rallying the troops and that kind mm. of thing. But more often it, it requires, you know, getting in the room with a variety of different teams within the company and getting them to work together, getting them to understand, you know, the clarity of, of what it is we're trying to go accomplish, how we need them to coordinate and collaborate so it, it's, uh, it's, it's probably not one end of the spectrum or the other. It's probably somewhere in between. How, how much of your, of your leadership abilities do you think are innate and just natural? And how much do you, do, of them do you think are things that you learned? Over, like, did you become a leader or were you born one? I, I think for me, I, I can't seem to get away from the fact that I was so fortunate to have been at the elbow of some really incredible and in some cases iconic uh, leaders in our industry. And so I got to watch up close and personal kind of how they went about things. And for me, it's really hard to somehow separate that experience from some of the other skills and abilities and whatever else that I potentially naturally bring to my job. Uh, I do think that I'm somebody that, first of all, really likes people and and loves the interaction with people and sees the value of connecting with and understanding and, you know, having kind of compassion for, for what's going on with somebody else. And that's such a basic foundational thing for leadership that if you're not somebody that naturally understands that, I think you, you, you for sure are going to struggle to, to be a leader. But the, ex- the experiential part of what I've been able to go through and, and who I've been able to meet and who I've not only worked for, but worked with. And what I've learned from all those people is a huge part of, of, of kind of who I am today and how I go about doing things. So it's a hard question. I'm not sure that I have a clear answer about, you know, are you born that way or, or, or is it developed? I think I'm a product of both. That's Jay Fulcher. He's the chairman and CEO of Zenefit. According to the company, they are well on their way to recovery, adding more than 200 new customers a month. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built It Productions.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 